Hi, I'm Dave Hunsinger. This is my wife, Ann Hunsinger, and daughter, Ruth, and we have two sons, Henry and George, that are away at school. Okay, Matthew 18, 1 through 5, and 10 through 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them, and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. It all happened in a moment, a most remarkable moment. As moments go, this one appeared no different than any other. If you could somehow pick it up off the timeline and examine it, it'd look exactly like the ones that have passed while you've read these words. It came and it went. It was preceded and succeeded by others just like it. It was one of the countless moments that have marked time since eternity became measurable. But in reality, that particular moment was like none other. For through that segment of time, a spectacular thing occurred. God became a man. While the creatures of earth walked unaware, divinity arrived. Heaven opened up herself and placed her most precious one in a human womb. The omnipotent, in one instant, made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent on the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus, holiness sleeping in a womb, the creator of life being created. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluid of his mother. God had come near. He came not as a flash of light or as an unapproachable conqueror, but as one whose first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a sleepy carpenter. The hands that first held him were unmanicured, calloused, and dirty. No silk, no ivory, no hype, no party, no hoopla. Were it not for the shepherds, there would have been no reception. Were it not for a group of stargazers, there would have been no gifts. 
Angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the street with him, and the synagogue leader in Nazareth, if he had known who was listening to his sermons. Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him, or vice versa. It could be that his knees were bony, but one thing is for sure. He was, wow, completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I have felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He was susceptible to the wooing of women. He got colds, burped, and had body odor. His feelings got hurt. His feet definitely got tired, and his head ached. To think of Jesus in such a light is, well, it almost seems irreverent, doesn't it? It's not something we like to do. It's kind of uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep humanity out of the incarnation, clean the manure from around the manger, manger, wipe the sweat out of his eyes, pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. It's easier to stomach that way. There's something about keeping him divine that keeps him distanced, packaged, and predictable. But don't do it. For heaven's sakes, don't. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and muck of our world. For only if we let him in can he pull us out. Listen to him. Love your neighbor was spoken by a man whose neighbors tried to kill him. The challenge to leave family for the gospel was issued by the one who kissed his mother goodbye in the doorway. Pray for those who persecute you came from the lips that would soon be begging God to forgive his murderers. I am with you always are the words of a God who in one instant did the impossible to make it all possible for you and for me. It all happened in a moment, in one moment, a most remarkable moment, the word became flesh. There will be another. The world will see another instantaneous transformation. You see, in becoming man, God made it possible for man to see God. When Jesus went home, he left the back door open. As a result, we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. For the first moment of transformation went unnoticed by the world. But you can bet your sweet September that the second one won't. The next time you use the phrase, just a moment, remember, that's all little time it will take to change the world. Advent. Christmas. They all, uh, those words conjure up memories, don't they? They conjure up expectations, feelings, um, hopes, desires, all of those kinds of things that come to mind when you use those words, Advent. Advent, as we enter the season of Advent, all we're remembering is the appearing of Christ, the Messiah. That's what it means. The appearance of Christ, God incarnate. God became a human. God came and lived with us. Hebrews says that he had to be like us, made like us, in every way. 
in every way. So I had him read this story to help you kind of get a sense of some of this humanity of Jesus. So often we, we ignore that. In fact, in many of our Christmas carols that we sang, we talked about uh, how perfect he was in the manger. and He was a human. He was a human. So we have entered the season of Advent today. It's the first season. That means we are to live in the anticipation of the coming of the Lord. We are to begin to look forward. How many of you enjoy this time of year? Let me see. Ah, several hands are right up, right away. This is a, this is a, a, a very good way a very encouraging way, I think, to close out each year is to just remind ourselves what this was all about, what this year was all about, what life is all about. And Jesus really sets the stage for that. Our desire as a staff and elders is to help you grow closer to the Lord during this time. I, ex I suspect that you would really like that. You would like to draw closer. So we want to spend time throughout this next few weeks talking about Jesus. We've already been trying to prepare the way. We did a series on generosity where we talked about giving, financial giving. There we looked at the generosity of God, our Father, and the generosity of the Son, and how we learned, I think we learned a lot about uh, how good, who, who God is and how he moves in our lives, and that becomes an example for us. And there we talked about the fact that your life will be more joyful if you adopted those principles in whatever way God leads you to become generous, more generous than you are. And then we move from there to the study of Philippians. Thanks, Tom, by the way, for finishing that out last week. We studied there. We looked at the sacrifice of Jesus in particular in, in Philippians 2. Such a simple statement, yet profound. Very, very profound. While he existed in the form of God, or although he exists in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, to held on to. And so he gave up his kingship and became a slave. He exchanged the glory of heaven for the brokenness of creation. He came to live where we are and see us and touch us hold us, smell us. Because in third world countries, if you've ever been there, you'll notice that uh, body space is not something that they think about. So if you walk into a Hindu temple or any place, a Buddhist temple, if there's a crowd, you just get pressed in on. So when it talks about they pressed in on Jesus, the people pressed in around him, um, they're there close. I remember on one of my trips, um, I was taking pictures of the students, and I'm working on my laptop, sitting down on a break, and um, I could smell them before I heard them. The uh, young female slipped in quietly behind me, and uh, they're watching over my shoulder, so I didn't do anything. I just kind of working. Next thing I know is there's this face right here pressed against mine. And pretty soon there's another face pressed against mine over here. And uh, pretty soon all, all of the, the female students, a whole bunch of them were just crowded in around me. They had their arms around me and they're just watching over my shoulder. They didn't think anything about personal space that we live with. A friend of mine went and snuck around in front and took a picture of 
of these beautiful, beautiful dark-skinned women and one white old guy in the middle and uh, stands out. Jesus came to be with us. He came to live life the way we live it. He had to be made like us and he had to be tempted like us in every way. That was a responsibility. Aren't you glad he did that? Aren't you glad that his level of faith, trust, it converted into a life of faithfulness for our benefit? That's what we're going to be talking about today is faith. That's the first Sunday of Advent, faith. Because you see, we, in our culture, we tend to water this down. Faith is uh, really anything that you believe. I believe that, and that gets synonymous, becomes synonymous with faith. But not so in the scriptures. The scriptural understanding of faith is that when you hear something, and for the first time, the light bulb comes on, if you will, and you say, oh, my, oh, wow, and your life changes. You can never go back to where you were. Your life is fundamentally different because of that. It's not simply a cognitive belief, assenting to some intellectual truth. It's far deeper than that. It actually creates change. And you can't go back. In fact, you'll never be satisfied if you try. Some of you know what I'm talking about. In fact, all of you. <laughs> You've tried to go back in various ways. And so here we have the creator of the universe, Jesus, becoming a human and living out, living out in spite of all the pain. No pain was too great. No sacrifice too harsh. No beating too strong. No mocking or shame too embarrassing because of his love for us. So his belief in the Father, the Father's will, translated into living out his life in terms of faithfulness. And we're going to look at that because that really is the, uh, that's the core of what Christmas is. First, I'm going to read a verse to you. It's out of Deuteronomy chapter 7. They're standing on the, this side of the Jordan, getting ready to cross into the promised land. They finished their 40 years of wandering. And this is God speaking to the nation of Israel through Moses. And here's what he says. It is not because you were more numerous than all of the other peoples that the Lord... This is all caps. This is talking about the one true living God. That this one true living God considered and chose you. Not because you were the biggest nation. Weren't the most successful? You're slaves. For in fact, you were the smallest of all the nations. But because of his love for you and his faithfulness to the oath he swore to your ancestors... The Lord brought you out with great power, redeeming you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is a key verse in biblical theology. It's because of his promise, motivated in his love. Our God always fulfills his promises. He never misses. How many times have we said all year that this Christmas reminds us that God did not forget his promises to us. He remembered us, didn't he? He came back for us. That's the message of Christmas. That's the message of Christmas. But then he goes on. Therefore, take note that it is the Lord your God who is God. He is the faithful God who keeps covenant faithfully. He remembers his promises. 
He is the faithful God who keeps the covenant faithfully with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. That phrase is used several times in the Bible. You're probably familiar with the other half of it. He visits the sins of the fathers on the children for two or three generations. You may have heard that. And I've heard lots of sermons talked about what that means and getting us to really wake up and remember that God, our sins get passed on. But we miss the whole intent of the passage because every place that phrase is used is a follow-on. But he blesses or remembers his promises for thousands of generations. The goal is not to make you frightened of the Lord. The goal is to let you see that whatever you are experiencing in the way of Lord getting your attention is minor and insignificant compared to the thousands of years of his blessing because he is faithful to his promise. That's where we start this whole discussion on faithfulness is with God himself. He is faithful. So then what happens in the New Testament, this whole picture of the Exodus and what God did, he remembered his promise. It gets all fleshed out, literally, with Jesus. It does. The same verbs that are used to, God says, I heard your cry. I heard your groaning. I remembered my promise. All those verbs are are used of Jesus. I've come down to rescue you, to save you. So all of this language that we see in this Old Testament, this this covenant God who fulfills his promise, we see with Jesus. This sets the stage for us to really understand what happened on the cross. And it all started in a manger. That's what Advent is about. Well, we hope to, during this season, we hope to help you draw closer to Christ, understand what he did in deeper and better ways, and to, in a very real and personal way, grasp who he is so that your life will be even more different and you can never go back. We're doing several things. One is we've organized the Advent season around these themes. First one is faith. Out at the welcome table when you leave, if you look, there's resources out there that you can purchase for you or for your family. We have some of each. If you want to just do a private devotion or if you want to do something with your children, there's things out there. Uh, Some of you may remember last year we did the Advent devotionals, the elders and staff uh, starting the first Sunday of Advent through Christmas. We sent an email to you in a devotional that each one of us wrote. They're not meant to be highly theological. That's what you get from me. These are stories of how our staff and elders have lived out their faith in real life. So some of you remember that, and uh, you asked, a bunch of you asked if we're going to do it again. Yes, we are. In fact, the first one was delivered to your inbox this morning. Uh, You were probably on your way to church. If you did not get one, or you've never given us your email address, and you'd like to receive one every day, the devotional, there's a sign-up sheet out there. Just put your name on it and your email, and we'll make sure you get signed up for it. And uh, allow us as staff and elders to bless you with just the way we think about this, the way we live out our faith. We all have different ways, different examples, different stories, different ways of approaching it. God's done different things. I think you'll find it to be uh, fascinating to read those. So today we're going to talk about the faithfulness of Jesus, and then we're going to get to the children. The children can teach us a lot, can't they? Did you learn something from them today? Do you enjoy watching them? It's pretty wild, isn't it? I just love watching the parents all up in the front rows. See all these empty chairs right up front. That's where all the parents were sitting. They were here first service, then second service. Just laughing at the kids. They're hilarious. They're hysterical. Um, the first service, we had a couple of them. We had to come rescue them because of uh, stage fright. They were going to look like they were going to get sick. And so, you know, Annika and some of the others came up here and rescued them and took them off so they were okay and brought them back up. And 
I made Mark promise if I ever get too nervous, I look like I'm going to pass out to come rescue me up here. I have the easy job. I'd never want to stand over there and sing a solo. <laughs> Let me just say. <laughs> children can teach us something. <clears throat> I think you might be surprised when we get into the passages on children what Christ was actually talking about. Um, we, need to, we need to step back into the first century world to get a better picture of children and how they were viewed to really grasp what Christ was referring to when he talked about the children. But first, um, I want to talk about Jesus' faithfulness. Today I'm using a different translation. I often work from the NIV or the TNIV. I'm using the uh, NET Bible, NET. This is a Bible that was uh, produced by the faculty at Dallas Seminary because it represents, I'm going to read to you a couple of passages, a change in the way we phrase something. The older NIVs out there in the pews won't have this language, but the newer ones, the one that have just revi uh, been revised, will have a footnote. And some of your Bible studies will say there's another way to translate this. And I think that this is correct. There's a growing number of translators, scholars, and pastors, because of our understanding of Greek grammar, we have a better handle on it now, are saying a couple of these passages need to be reworked. And so Dow Seminary has already reworked it in their translation, and some of yours will as well. So I'm going to call attention to it because I want you to see what they're highlighting. The first passage is in Romans chapter 3. Again, these are all well-known passages. Um, when you hear them, you say, oh yeah, I know the passage. And that's good. I like it when it's familiar to you. That way, when I read a translation different, you'll say, huh? <laughs> so Romans 3, Paul had just finished arguing for three and a half chapters, uh, two and a half chapters, that uh, as he says in chapter 3, verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness, not even one. He goes on and on and on to make the point. He assembles all these Old Testament texts and put them together to argue a single point that there is nothing inside of you that commends you to God. We call that total depravity. There is nothing inside of you that makes you seek God. If God does not choose to tap you on the shoulder to come after you, then guess what? It's hopeless. And every one of you, if I were to listen to your stories of conversion, I would be able to place your story within a broader story of God coming after you. You just didn't recognize his voice. He was there long before you trusted in him. In fact, that's true with every human. You've heard me say when I meet a non-believer, somebody who doesn't yet know Jesus, I know two things are true. God loves them infinitely more than I do, and he's been involved in their lives a lot longer than I have. And that's true in each of your lives as well. There's a process of awakening where you begin to actually hear the Lord's voice, but his voice was present long before you heard it and could make sense of it. So Paul just argued that. If Jesus, if God does not intervene, it's hopeless. Then the answer to that I'm going to start in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, we talked earlier about as opposed to the righteousness of the law or our own righteousness, true righteousness. This true righteousness has been disclosed. Namely, this true righteousness which comes from God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Most of your translations, if you have older ones, will say through our faith in Jesus this is a change in the translation, and I believe it's appropriate. I believe it's the right one. They made this change in several places, four key ones. Now, 
before we go any further, that is not in any way to downplay the role that our faith in Jesus plays because that's very significant in our theology. The Bible says both. We just recognize in a few of these places, the authors are highlighting something that Jesus has done that is fantastic. That leads to our faith in him. So listen to this again. But now, apart from the law, this true righteousness which comes from God has been disclosed. Namely, the the righteousness that comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. He revealed it through what he did on the cross. And it's for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat accessible through faith. With This was to demonstrate his righteousness because God, in his forbearance, in his patience, passed over the sins previously committed. He overlooked the sins of all the generations prior to Christ. He just patiently waited for the perfect time to sacrifice his son. Do you, just, do you feel the grace in that passage? That God would choose to overlook, pass over our sins until he could provide for the solution? I just think that's wonderful. Verse 26, this was also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. Here's the second place that it's upgraded. Some of your older translations will say, because of our faith in Jesus. Because of Jesus' faithfulness. Do you see how the author here, Paul, is, is surfacing something fantastic and wonderful about Christ? He trusted his Father, and he lived out that faith in everything he did. And it's because of that faithfulness that the righteousness of God is revealed, and we can come to a saving relationship with him. That's one example. It's also found in Galatians. It's found in uh, Philippians. It's found in Ephesians. So what does this faithfulness look like? We're not going to read the passages because you're familiar with most of them. We have the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6.10. Right? So what does he say about your will being done in heaven as it is, on earth as it is in heaven? Right? His strongest desire, because he knew without any doubt, that's faith. He knew without any doubt that the Father's will was the best possible option that there was. That was his prayer. That was his prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or you go from there to Matthew 26 where he says, I wish you would take this cup from me just before the betrayal and the execution. I wish you would do that. You ever prayed that? Lord, I wish you would take this away from me. But then how does he finish? You know the famous words, but not my will. Your will be done. Because he knew beyond all doubt that the will of the Father was without question the best option. And he was willing to submit himself to the Father's will. Or Galatians 1, Paul says, Jesus gave himself up for us, 
because of the will of the Father. Or Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. Hebrews only mentions Jesus talking twice, and one of them is in Hebrews 10. And he says, I have come to do your will, O God. I've come to do your will. So the faithfulness, what does it look like for Jesus to live it out? That faithfulness means he lived out the Father's will. No punishment too severe. No no beating too strong. No shame too humiliating. No pain too great. Because he knew that the will of his Father was the best and only solution moving forward, the right way. Okay, you can see where we're going to go with this, I think. Do we really desire to live out the Lord's will? What is the struggle we face every day? My will or his? Man, I like to be on the throne. I'm just telling you. <laughs> I'm comfortable there. I like being in control, having it my way. But what's best? What's really best? Is there any beating so great? Any prison so horrible? Any mocking so shameful and embarrassing that you're really willing to say, my will is better than his? Isn't that the struggle we face every day? So Jesus comes and sets the example for us of what that's like to obey the Father's will. That's what faithfulness is. When you live out your faith, that means that you are submitting to the will of the Father. That's what it means. That's what it means. But then Jesus does the most amazing, remarkable thing. He gives us an example that um, is a very unlikely example. No one would have expected it. It's children. It's Matthew 18, children. I'm going to read a couple different passages here. And you think, well, children are a perfect example. They are in our culture. We love these cuddly little things, especially the grandparents where we don't have to take them home with us. Right? Wish my kids were half as good as my grandkids. <laughs> They're fun, right? In our culture, our culture is so, and by the way, this isn't a criticism. Our culture is shaped such that the younger children receive a great deal of honor, respect, and attention. How many laws do we have protecting them? How many teachings do we have on what does it mean to be a good parent? Um, you know, uh, fathers today spend time with their children. Most likely that didn't happen in the first century world. First of all, it's a world of polygamy. And so you have, uh, you have, different, uh, you have different wives in different families. And so they came up with the roles. The father was called the pater familias, the father of the family. The mother was the mater familias. And each had their roles. The fathers probably often didn't even see their children. They're out working or they're gone for months at a time on campaigns and wars. That's what happened. Uh, they talk about that. The seasons of the wars, the, the Old Testament refers to. And so the fathers weren't there in the lives of the children. That's just not the way that things were done. The father would set the course. This is the gods that we are going to worship, or these are the gods or goddesses. And the mothers were all responsible to make that happen, live it out. Fathers would go do their thing. So the concept we have of the family today wasn't the same concept they had in the Old Testament uh, or the time of Jesus, either one. It was very different. You see, the children were the lowest form in the social structure. They were the lowest at the lowest level. They were below the slaves. Quite the opposite from our country, isn't it? And I'm glad for that. I'm really glad that we know so much about how to love our children in better ways. I'm really thankful for that. One of the things we don't do well as a country 
Because we don't honor our older people. That was of high value in the first century world and earlier. The older you were, the more respect you had. So you have Job's friends come and sit. What do they do? They come and they sit. What do we do when we go to a friend that's in, that's in pain? We start giving them advice. What do they do? They sat quietly for a week. They just sat there with them for a week and watched out of respect. We could do a lot better job in our country of uh, respecting our elders. Um, we tend to lose value as they age. So you're a child and you're at the bottom of the totem pole socially in the first century world. Why is that? Because the whole context of the first century world, the whole culture was based on shame and honor. It didn't matter what you thought on the inside as long as you didn't live it out on the outside. Behavior was the way you evaluated social economies and the way they related to each other. And so as long as you didn't bring shame on the family, it was okay. If you brought shame on the family, that shame covered the entire family forward and backward. Everyone. And so children were an unknown because they didn't know what their character was going to be like yet. And so children were the lowest of the low. They were insignificant. Keep out of the way. When you have a chance to grow to adulthood and you demonstrate your character, then we'll give you significance, but not before then. That's why all those harsh passages all throughout this period of time on being a child, black and blue, you could stone a child if they're rebellious, all that, is because if a child brought shame on my family, you wouldn't do business with me. I would lose my social structure. I would lose my respect in community. And uh, my, I would become isolated. And the way to deal with it is get rid of the kid. <laughs> That's one of the ways to deal with it. By the way, the same was true in many places regarding women. If the wives brought shame against the husbands, then uh, let's get rid of them. And so that's the context in which the early, the early church was formed. So Jesus takes the insignificant, the lowest of the low, and says, become like this child. By the way, as a short aside, the passages on adoption, we have no record of them adopting that I'm aware of, adopting children, first century world. The risk was too great. If I adopted a child, I had no idea what they were going to turn out like. We waited. They waited until the children had established their character in early adulthood, and then they would adopt them as adults. That's how they did it. Now think about the fact that we have received adoption. They would not have heard, when they read these two passages in Romans and Galatians on adoption, they would not have heard that God chose an orphan and tried, decided to make me part of his family what they would have heard was, wow, God has already assessed my character huh. before he saved me. Because that's what you did in adoption. He didn't take a child and train it up. That's not how you did it. You took an adult who was already trained and established. And so that's a strong theological statement about a God who is incredible in what he knows. He has already made a declaration about your character when he saved you. You're not going to shame him. That's what they would have heard. Okay, so Jesus takes this passage. We're going to go through these pretty quickly. Romans, uh, Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child. Now you see why that's such a surprise? You'd expect a Pharisee or a ruler or a king or a governor or an emperor or somebody that's successful. He calls a child who has no significance, no value whatsoever, none. 
calls a child. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn around and become like this child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a cultural faux pas. Jesus wasn't afraid of challenging culture. He wasn't. Mary and Martha, when Mary sits at his feet, Martha gets all upset. That's because women weren't allowed to sit at the feet of teachers. And yet here he let Mary sit at his feet. No wonder. The Samaritan woman, when the disciples come back, he's talking to a Samaritan woman in John 4, and they're astounded. What are you doing? That's a cultural faux pas. It's embarrassing. Same with children. In Luke, the other passage, Luke chapter 18, where children are involved, listen to their response. Now, people were bringing their babies to him for him to touch. But when the disciples saw it, they began to scold them. This is not acceptable. You can't do this. But Jesus called for the children, saying, Let the children come to me and do not try to stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. What is he talking about? He's talking about simple faith. Because you see, a child was subservient to everybody. The slaves were the ones who taught the children largely. The mothers would hand that off to the slaves and they would teach the children. They would tutor them and teach them things. The slave, the children were completely dependent 100% on everyone else for their well-being, their welfare, their care, all of that, their honor and respect. And there was a lot of pressure on children to grow up and conform. Tons. Tons. So it's a very new thought to allow a child to become what God has made them to become. That's countercultural. That's revolutionary. I praise God for it. And the Bible from the beginning is reinforcing that idea against the cultural norm where children had to perform. So you see the expectations on children? The expectations were high and they had no internal resources to draw on. What do you have? You have college education, many of you. You have wealth. Some of you have accumulated wealth. You have prestige. You have positions of power. You have, uh, you've climbed the corporate ladder, some of you, or you have your own business. You have all kinds of calling cards that you can use that give you power, that give you prestige. Children had none of that. Nothing. They were insignificant. Now we're back to what Paul says in Philippians. All those things I count as rubbish. They're insignificant compared to the eternal weight of glory. What, what God has allowed you to accomplish. So do you see it? Childlike faith. Childlike faith is wonderful. It really is because you are completely dependent and subservient. In order for you to enjoy the Advent season in a healthier, better way, I would encourage you to focus on becoming like a child. Seek to obey God's will every day as you go about your business. Don't rest on the accomplishments that you've achieved. Don't. Place yourself voluntarily in the role where you have nothing but dependence. You see, that's what Jesus did. He is the example for us to follow. That is the story of Christmas. A king who became a slave. 
but not just a slave, a king who became a child. He starts off lower than a slave, starts off as a child. You get it? That makes sense to you? He was a slave and a child. As soon as he became an adult, they killed him. And he had nothing. Isaiah 53, he had nothing to commend us to him. He didn't even look handsome by the end. He was disfigured beyond, beyond belief. He had nothing to commend us. So my thought for you, to encourage you, is throughout this Advent season, take the time each day and just sometime during the day, put yourself in that position. What does it look like not to have something to commend us? No accomplishments. I'm going to just trust the Lord, except with childlike faith. And I bet your love for um, Advent will grow and grow and grow. You'll enjoy the Christmas season in ways you never had. Yes, you'll enjoy the smells and the traditions and the family things. Those are all good. I want you to do those. Sit with your family. Do the things that you've done that make it fun and happy. Tell the story. Sing the songs. Bake the goods. Make the gingerbread houses. Do all that. But weave throughout that experience that decision each day to say, how do I live like a child today? Insignificance with nobody to trust but my Father in Heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your Son, but thank you for being a wise Father. Jesus, thank you for coming, for dying for us, and for trusting completely in your Father because that shows us that we can as well. Help us, Lord, to do that as we enjoy all the the myriad of things that are about to happen this month, which are so good. Help us, Lord, to enjoy all those things while we are aware, while we gaze, put our gaze to heaven and are aware of you and what you've done. Help us to have faith like a child. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name, because we believe in you. Amen.